0: going guys i'm zeke and i'm jake and you're listening to the cinema side show podcast episode two hundred and twenty six. Seven. 26 Seven. Oh, oh, made a mistake
1: we're back in time zeke back in time do, 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 do. we're talking we about yet? bergman of course yes but not the director bergman the actor
0: i don't know i thought bergman was there like director's corner
1: I, it kind of felt like it, didn't it?
0: Yeah, it felt like a real Director's Corner episode.
1: I'm glad, because like, there's so much more of his filmography we, we haven't got to yet, yes. so maybe down the line we'll get there, but no, we're talking about Ingrid Bergman, No Relation, which I thought was uh, quite surprising. They're both Swedish. They're both friends with uh, Mattson. Mm.
0: <laughs> I didn't realise that was a scars uh, guard. Anyway, how it, are yes, you, Jake?
1: Yes, most certainly is. I'm good. I'm really good. I'm uh, just vibing, Zeke. I was yes. having a funny conversation the other day uh, with my mother mm. about she... Khans of course. It's going on at the moment. Yes. Uh, lots of uh, films out there. talking about Indiana Jones, the new one. It's not getting very good reviews, Zeke. It's actually getting quite panned from what I'm seeing. And I, I mentioned this, kind of an off, off-handed comment, mm-hmm. and mum asks, oh, so who's playing him now? Who's playing Indiana Jones? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> 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 uh, so, I, of course, I said, well, actually, it's Harrison Ford. He's still playing. Yeah. She's like, oh, my God, how old is he? And and then proceeded to make a really funny joke where it's like, well, you know, he's an archaeologist. He really should be trying to find, you know, his own bones. The bones of his own grave, so to
0: speak. Yeah, he does look a little skeletal. Yeah.
1: I know we're being very ageist right now, but, mm. but uh, I just wanted to get that in. I thought that was... a. Uh,
0: a funny joke. Look, some things aren't are timeless, and some mm. things aren't timeless. Yes, of course. However, the film of the week is pretty <laughs> timeless. So, Jake, <laughs> have you got any fun trivia from the film of the week, which is, of course, the 1942 film
1: Casablanca? I do, and uh, yes, the film is very timeless. The film's had a long longevity. A long longevity is that? Let's just say the film's longevity speaks for itself. And it's amongst other great American classics, films that we've done like Citizen Kane and Gone with mm-hmm. the Wind and all of that, um, all of which have very classic lines and especially Casablanca has very classic lines. However, a lot of them are actually often misquoted. So the line, Lewis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, is often referred to as this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Just a, you know, slight mm. incorrect measure, kind of like the uh, Luke, I am your father sort of... There's just a slight incorrectness to it. There's also the line, play it again, Sam, which is technically never said that way. The line is, you played it for her, you can play it for me. If she can stand it, I can. Play it. But even then, she also says various versions of, you know, I'll play it for me or play it again. Sam, Mm. please play it. But never actually play it again, Sam. So as timeless as the film is, I think a lot of people do go on and misquote it. Not to their fault, but to the
0: fault of many of the spoof the references.
1: Exactly. Spoofs and parodies. So Zeke, what's your fun facts about well, Casablanca?
0: Obviously this film uh is heavily dependent on when it was set. Obviously, um it's set in well, at the time of making the film ah. essentially. Um nineteen forty one, film's nineteen forty two, so it's pretty much in the midst of World War Two. And, of course, many of the actors who played Nazis, which, uh, you know, obviously Germany has a big part. They uh, Mm. serve as the central antagonist of the film. Were, in fact, German Jews who had actually escaped Nazi Germany, which I (laughs) find that incredibly interesting. Yes. How quick that portrayal is. And, of course, there is talk of uh, concentration camps in this. Mm. And I think we were, because of the film's timing, which we can talk about uh, in the second half of the show... Um, I wonder if this film had come out two or three years later in the war, had that depiction been, well, more, obviously still an antagonist, but quite a neutral, um, a less, uh, demonic, I guess, villain, Right. the okay. Nazi Germany of yeah. this film.
1: No, I think, I think the context of when this film is made is obviously so integral to the discussion mm. behind it. I mean, the film, you know, stands for itself and, and like you said, it's timeless, so in a way, you can kind of watch it without realising that it was made before World War II even ended. But I think you're right. I think that is an interesting question, how the portrayal would be different if, you know, given a few years or a few decades. I mean, mm. we've seen many, 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 many films over the last 100 years uh, of how Nazis are portrayed. And ge- generally, the, the, the consensus is pretty similar <laughs> mm. amongst a lot of the, those popular films. Yeah. Now, Zeke, Casablanca is very... Very famous film. Do you reckon it's on the poster behind you? Eleven hundred films you must watch before you die. I'm gonna say yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: It's it's it would be a bit of a surprise if it wasn't. I mean Seventh Seal last <laughs> week did surprise. That's true. That is true. So there are Nothing's
1: off str- the ta- Green Miles not in there. Stranger so, Things. Yeah, exactly.
0: Isn't on there. <laughs> Damn it. yeah <laughs> So Jake, mm. before we jump into the film of the week, have you caught anything in the last week? I
1: have not seen much. Mm-hmm. I I actually rewatched Twilight with Kirsty, which uh, you know it, it lost the polls leak several weeks ago, but that wasn't yeah. going to stop us. We're going to rewatch Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'll I'll say this because I've actually kind of theorized for a long time. I said, I wonder if the film's going to hold up better or worse than I remember, and the answer is it it doesn't. It doesn't. Mm. And part of the reason for that is when I realised that Catherine Hardwick, who directed the first one, was uh, interestingly absent from the rest of the franchise. And I think, looking back, it's actually quite clear to see that Twilight, the film, was kind of a standalone, standalone indie film. Uh, obviously, this kind of, uh, not, what's the word I'm looking for? Cheesy, romance, aimed at young, teenage or mm. pubescent girls. Uh, so it's easy, you know, to make fun of it. for for its target audience and that but stylistically it's way more independent than Mm. the rest of the series is and like the the remaining films new moon eclipse all that were actually directed by men watching the trailers for them you can kind of tell how much of they're trying to turn into a big fantasy franchise much in the vein of harry potter so i feel like twilight is actually really separated from all of its sequels sequels. uh, because of that fact and because of its tone and um, which I find really interesting. And and I wanted to talk a bit about the performances. Because uh, Christian Stewart, Robert Patterson, they've obviously gone on to have huge careers outside of Twilight. They've sort of both had to climb out of a pit <laughs> in terms of their reputation. And I think they've both done so very well. Uh, in particular, Robert Patterson, which is like the breadth and depth of being in Safdie films and, and uh, Christopher Nolan films, playing Batman, of course. Uh, so there's all of that. But... Their performances are pretty not great. <laughs> There's no secret, you know, uh, spice to it that's like, oh, now that I look back in reflection. And I actually don't think it's their fault. I actually think it's part of the direction because they go out of their way to, to talk about Bella's characters like being clumsy and uh, always like forgetful and always tripping over things. And I think she tried to inject that through her direction in, into Christian Stewart's performance and it just came off as super wooden and, like, unable to act in front of a camera. Like, yeah. that kind of... You know, when you get your teen friends to come around and star in a movie and it's all... Everyone's overly conscious of the camera that's there. Um, so I think that's kind of what sticks out about their performance, specifically. But I just wanted to give that a shout-out, because <laughs> watching Twilight many, many, many years later, uh, especially now with the, you know, the breadth and depth of film knowledge we have, Zeke, since we were both, what, 11? when that film came out. Yes. Um I thought it was interesting to reanalyse it uh from that standpoint.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What That's about fair. what about you, Zeke? Have you been watching anything last um, week? Um yeah, I caught one documentary. Um okay. unfortunately it's a it's a couple of decades later than obviously the focus of this week being the nineteen forties. it's a documentary around Steve McQueen who was kind of a the first ever sort of not method actor, but definitely the first ever stuntman actor. I think, or at least okay. the, the the most quintessential one that we associate at least with Western cinema. You know, this was this was a man who was absolutely made his career, um, established his career just like every other Hollywood star. But his love and fascination for cars and driving sort mm. of laid the groundworks for you know people that we more like hold to the same sort of account the Tom Cruise's Tom of Cruise, the world, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, and. McQueen became an avid race car driver while being a, um, a while being uh, an actor. And mm. uh, the film I watched was Steve McQueen's lost film, which centres around. It's a documentary that centres around a film in which uh, basically was sort of his uh, magnum opus, if you will. It was mm-hmm. the film he always wanted to make. Okay. Um, being absolutely in love with cars, he wanted to make a film about Formula One racing. So this was. Uh, Steve McQueen, The Lost Movie. Um, Basically follows a little bit of his biographical history and career and how he got into race car driving. And while he was shooting other films, um, he would be going to the race course and learning how to be an F1 (laughs) driver. And then this led to this, uh, between John Sturges and, I've got to get his name, I think it's Frankenheimer, um, who I personally didn't know... I going to say you personally knew. No, I didn't I personally like, wow, that's no. impressive. No, I did not. Um, John Frankenheimer um, led to two opposing Grand Prix F1 films being made at the same time between mm. Warner Bros and MGM. Um, not and Ford v Ferrari? A, a <laughs> sense, well, the, in the filmic version, sure. I mean, this was actually essentially in Frankenheimer's film. It's actually a Ferrari car and... In Sturges, it's all Ford cars, so go. it actually was uh, <laughs> the most metaverse film versus Fer- uh, F- uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Um, look, I'll say I say I did enjoy the documentary. I do like film documentaries. This definitely had that film biographical aspect to it. I didn't know too much about Steve McQueen. I've never seen The Great Escape or Papillon or mm. um, a lot of these films that he is synonymous with. Even mag- the original Magnificent Seven, which mm. was sort of his breakout role. Um, he has been an enigma on the show. We've never really looked at Steve McQueen. Not or, really, no. So perhaps that's somewhere we need to look in the future. He came at that time between that early mid sixties, which, you know, we've definitely covered that very late sixties, early seventies quite well with our Redfords and our Nick, a birth of Nicholson and mm. Redfords and, um, Paul Newman and, and what have you. And I think it's quite interesting. The documentary definitely opened that door up for me to be like, Oh, I really want to watch some Steve McQueen films. Oh, there you go. Um, because you're really seeing that kind of godfather of those actors that move beyond just being just an actor. They want to incorporate aspects of their life into their work. And, yeah. Um, that makes him, in a way, one of the first major movie stars. The difference between the actor and a movie star. Like that. Right. Being able gotcha. to be like, I want to be in films where they make... Um, and not being afraid to say no to a director or yeah. a paycheck.
1: I guess the comparison, I mean we're about to talk about Casablanca and you go you got Humphrey Bogart, and you know, these great stars are in there. Like you said, these are movie stars of this era and sort of the Hays Code that are there to service the studio and service the movie and to yeah. bring tickets in. And I think the movie stars you're talking about as we enter like the sixties and seventies are the ones that all of a sudden they're they have much more agency over what the film is.
0: Yeah, and I that's something that that came out of like yeah, out of the 60s and then moving into the 70s, especially and I think there was a really good consensus there where it's like before this there was only a lot of re- really good actors mm. whereas these were movie stars. They right. didn't mind. And it was to his detriment, obviously McQueen's film never got made, so all yeah. we've got is this archive footage and grand prix the uh uh, um, the frankenheimer film went on to go win oscars yeah (laughs) while um mcqueen was getting nominated for oscars for another film that had but it was that sort of um yeah i think there was definitely wanting to make that film and being the first to make that f1 film which we kind of take for granted you you know they're putting these cameras on on these f1 cars yeah and i'm looking at it just in awe of the amount of effort they're putting in, you know, they're going to like the Monaco Grand Prairie and they're just filming it an hour before the actual yeah, race yeah, starts. Yeah. And there's so much hustle and stuff. And we really do take for granted that now most of the time they'll just recreate the race, like in completion. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, let's just do it.
1: Just do it. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> I will also give a shout out to Howard Hughes, cause obviously his love for aircrafts and planes and how that influenced his filmography, but that's different cause I don't think he was an actor. Mm. He was a director, and that's what he wanted to make. But you're, yeah, you are talking about actors who were like, I am so passionate about this particular thing, I want to make movies about this thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, his it. rebellious sort of, or even anti-like that sort of system, the old school system, is one of the things that's synonymous with McQueen as a person. But mm. like I said, haven't really had much of a magnifying glass on him or his career or any of his films. So sure. maybe this at some be point... be the time. That will be the time to have a, a visit... The only other things I've watched in the last week are shows. Obviously, okay. I've caught up to the episode before this last episode of Succession. Yep. That was a big episode. Like you said, I do agree with what you were saying last week on the show. I, I think, arguably, I I don't know if I prefer that episode, but... Oh, interesting. Just, I'm torn, because I actually think that episode has a lot more payoff, whereas and without the shock factor. right. It right. goes back to being that sort of, like you said... I love that it brings back in the sort of those stuff they haven't really talked about since season yeah. one. Well, just like the, the actions,
1: there's always actions have consequences within the family and within the media conglomeracy. But but yeah, like you said, this most recent episode, it kind of brings it back to the wider world view of like we're seeing how mm. this affects the everyday citizen. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad that Succession seems to be tying that into the last few episodes of the show. Yeah. And I'm really sad. There's only, there's only one left.
0: Um, so the only other things I, I I did also in talking about with Succession, I'm sure we'll yes. have maybe the week after the finale, we'll have maybe a little bit more of a, a thorough talk about the show as a whole. I think sure. we did a very similar thing with BoJack when it came to its conclusion. Yep. Um, our Ocean's I, Eleven episode.
1: There you go. We talked about the BoJack finale.
0: Um... I've I've caught the start of Billions, which yes is sort of,
1: uh, you sent me a screen grab did. The,
0: the opening the, shot of the show. Yes. <laughs> obviously, Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti. Big fan of Damian Lewis from his Band of Brothers stint mm. twenty years ago. Twenty five. <laughs> no, he was good in Homeland, and he's obviously always been good whenever he's popped up anywhere. Um, he's definitely more become a, a TV, like a strong TV actor. You don't mm. see him in too many films, but he's so good. And he was excellent always. And I watch Band of Brothers every year, and every time I'm like, he's excellent. Giamatti, that's Paul Giamatti, I think, arguably (laughs) one of the most diverse, one of the best facial expression actors I've I've ever seen. Interesting. I think what he does, how he somehow manages to incite comedy or serious, like catch that tonality there. Like he, in this, he's pretty serious but he's so good at it, like compelling and, and threatening. And obviously basically this involves Giamatti is, um, the, oh, I'm forgetting what they call him district attorney mm. for, uh, I think the state of Massachusetts. That's how it works. Um, and Damien Lewis is billionaire. Who's obviously had very crooked means as to becoming a billionaire, but mm. has been kind of untouchable because he's done a lot of charity work He worked for a company in which every board member except him died in the 9-11 attack. Oh, Um, my God. I don't know. This is a six-season show, so I don't know where or how that's going to be unpacked, but we shall find out. Yeah. Um, That's fascinating. I love that. And in which Giamatti pretty much is not going near him. He's cracked down a lot of financial crime and and this, that, and the other. He's kind of a self-made man. He does come from a wealthy background, but obviously not in the same vein. Mm. Um I haven't gone in enough to really give too much of a consensus it's definitely interesting sure. it's so it's a little jarring obviously coming from the the varifocal crash zoom mm. style of of succession and then going to a far more clean and conservative
1: sure like uh, the camera work and yeah. the presentation right yeah
0: it's far more um traditionalist mm. and um that doesn't mean the feel of the show's worse or off for it oh, but God, it is no. just a jarring um, and it's a different yeah. type of film too, because it's a, a different type of series. Because it's clearly following, uh, it's this cat versus mouse, or this sort of sort of more law, like law and order f- aspect, where succession rarely feels a touches... little more like a
1: western. Like it feels like the the yeah. billionaires in that show are a bit more untouchable.
0: Yeah, um, in which they're only you know, when like the cruisers incident happens in season two, it's, Mm. it's more just, Oh, this is just going to drop our stock price. It's not even that real. Oh, like, like I guess Tom is levied to go to prison, but it's only really Tom that's going. Well,
1: even so it's like the finale of season two is like a very comedic, like discussion amongst characters. Like, Oh, but who's going to take the fall? Yeah. There's absolutely no hint of discussion of the integrity of it, of like who actually deserves to go to prison for this. It's like, well, who's the best one in terms yeah. of optics? Yeah, that that's how they handle those situations, it, as opposed to it sounds like in billions, it's all a little more. Yeah, The well, the, the dogfight might be a little more in a legal sense. I'm
0: definitely intrigued, and I've I've wanted to keep watching. I started watching with Lucinda. We watched on Friday night. We kind of both kind of keen on this, but you know, she definitely roped me into it. Mostly, it's that love and death show on binge, which is. Uh Jesse Clemens oh, yeah. and Elizabeth Olsen that dropped in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I've
1: seen I've kind of been wanting to check this out. I just haven't really had the Yeah you know, the chance to, to click the button, I suppose.
0: What what are you so how far are you in? Uh we've into I think we're up to episode three of ten. Okay. So um definitely enough to get a a, a consensus. A Essentially it, yeah. the the premise of the show is it's in this small Christian loving town set with Elizabeth Olsen is this wife with three kids. She's essentially undergoing the same sort of crisis of character and, and identity that, um, spacey's character in American beauty is undergoing except instead of pursuing an underage girl, it's Jesse Plemons and Um, you know, who often is kind of just another member of the church who's married, of course. So they start having an affair and I think this this is based off a true life story that I think leads to someone's death. I don't know whose death. Ah. Um it's essentially that suburbia gone mad sort of drama yeah, where yeah. the so mundane. American Beauty's a
1: very good example then. Um,
0: and yeah, a really yeah. good example because the only difference is yeah, that the, the object of desire is just a person of the same age, just yeah. in that sense of... And, of course, Clemens is playing a character that is not, like, a George Clooney. It's it's Jesse Clemens, and yeah. even, like, there are characters around her who she's telling... She's a very plain person. He's is very idea? plain. Well, yeah. I mean, let's be real. Like, Clemens is a, not a... Like, he's not a good-looking, starlet man. Yeah, I think, he, I think he lost weight recently. Yeah, I saw
1: someone post a photo, so I think he's lost the weight now.
0: But he's unashamedly real-looking. Sure like that's, yeah that's he's not of... he's not Brad Pitt or and George Clooney the, yeah you know especially in contrast to you know Elizabeth Olsen who's quite attractive we were even having this conversation I was like yeah but you have to understand it's like for her it's not necessarily about the even she says she's like I don't really understand why I'm attracted to him but that's sort of just how attraction yeah. works sometimes you know it's it's more
1: about like the midlife crisis the suburban crisis yeah more yeah. than just like the straight like I'm like yeah like he's twi- attractive I'm no, gonna... like
0: oh they're both sexy so Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's just how life works, really. Um, And I think it has been quite intriguing. Like, I definitely, we're going to keep picking up and watching it every time we hang out because it's always nice when we find a show. I mean, Only Mm. Murders in the Building season three is coming out this year, and we're like so excited for that. Oh, Um, excellent. And it's nice when you have these shows where you're able to just sort of pick them up and drop them off. I was, I was. I did her dirty though, Jake. I did watch all of beef. With, uh, oh, with, you've we watched the first, that. we first, first bit and I kept watching beef. That's, that's, the da- that's,
1: that's the danger. That is the danger of it. I mean, what's funny because me and Kirsty haven't actually really done that yet. It's a lot of either. I watch a show that she loves that she's already seen or vice versa. We're about halfway through better call soul. Now we're approaching the end of season three. So I'm really excited about that. And she's absolutely loving it. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, we haven't, like, sat down and just picked a show at random that neither of us know anything about and have just, like, committed to that ride.
0: Big, I have to say, big critiques of the two shows I just talked about. They haven't got nearly as banging music as Succession. Oh, well, that's a given. Is it... (laughs) I, I honestly think Succession's intro music is the best I've heard since... I mean, Game of Thrones' intro was just like... Yeah, fair enough. ...on another planet. It I mean, is I've, so I've
1: cool. been saying it for years. Succession soundtrack,
0: it might be the best television soundtrack ever. Yeah, it's definitely in the conversation. 100% I'd put it on the table. I think Westworld had... Its intro was good, but... It, yeah, that's not where that show shines for me, its soundtrack. <laughs> but uh, Succession, every time you hear it, it's just, like, so good.
1: And it's really interesting, because, like...
0: Vikings was pretty good too. Okay, actually. yeah, a bit different. Very yeah. good. So maybe that's a, maybe that's what we do one day instead of doing like the eleven hundred, we just do a top five of this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's funny because like with Nicholas Pratel in particular, because obviously he does the Succession music, and you're just just so obsessed with it. So you, when you watch other things that you know he's composed for, you really try and pay attention to that. And that was for me with Don't Look Up, was like nobody talks about Don't Look Up for its soundtrack. But listen to the soundtrack; it's amazing.
0: Yeah, that's because Jonah Hill is being annoying on top of it.
1: <laughs> Ooh. Uh,
0: don't look up, goddamn! But no,
1: it's got it's got that jazzy element to it, but it's got that like ethereal, like elder, um, like the scale of otherworldliness. Like it, it melds those ideas so well, and you know, like you said, it's it's most people don't pick up on it because there's so many other elements. About the film that are obnoxious, least, that are yes ch- taking your attention. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> trying to be diplomatic here. I don't
0: hate that film. <laughs> oh, I loathe it. But uh, Jake, it's time for us to move to our second last. Oh, can't go through the decades for the fourth year. So fourth annual can't go through the decades. Jake, two films go up for it. Only one walks out. <laughs> what are we watching?
1: Ah, uh, I'm now. I'm trying to remember what. What was the other film that was? It's on a the Wonderful road? Life. It was a Wonderful Life. <laughs> it's the one I, I bloody put up as well. This week on the shows, we're watching Michael Curtiz's Casablanca. You
2: knew how much I loved you. How much I still love you. I know a good deal more about you than you suspect. I know, for instance, that you're in love with a woman. It's perhaps a strange circumstance that we both should love the same woman. What do you want for Sam? You don't buy and sell human beings. It's too bad as Casablanca's leading commodity.
1: You can ask any price you want, but you must give me those letters. That's all. I, I tried to reason with you, I tried it. Now I want those letters.
0: World War II. Rick, a nightclub owner in Casablanca, agrees to help his former lover, Ilsa, and her husband. Soon, Ilsa's feelings for Rick resurface and she finds herself renewing her love for him. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Ellipsis.
1: Ellipsis. He is looking at you, Zeke.
0: That's a line from the movie. It is. But you've replaced it with... Your name. With my name. Excellent. Excellent. There are that's, a lot of That's quotable
1: some Web 2.0
0: shit right there. Yeah. That's there some are,
1: intertextuality right there.
0: There are a lot of quotable lines here when you really think yeah. about it. As you talked about at the top of the show, yes, most of them are from Mr. Humphrey Bogart. Mm. He was another one this week. I took the time and I was like, oh, I don't know much about Humphrey Bogart. Heard mm. the name. Remember Looney Tunes quoting it? <laughs> yes. Who is Humphrey Bogart? Mm. And you know what? You think... And if anyone's listening out of there, shotgun this idea. But there were no, like, biographical uh, documentaries on just Humphrey Bogart.
1: And then let alone,
0: not just that, there weren't a lot of, um, like, video essays, like YouTube essays Mm -hmm. um, on it. And the ones I did find had, like, the Microsoft Sam voice over them.
1: And you're like... (laughs) That's when you know you're on the wrong side of the internet. Yeah. Or at least approaching it.
0: But yeah, he died in 1957. Wow. Yeah. That's really sad. And I was like... Because it's like one of those names, you know? Like, which, we're talking about Max von Sindau, mm. who was like, what, 90 when he died? Yeah. A couple of years ago, so... It wasn't very long ago, that's it. Yeah, you know? So you'd think, oh, what happened to Humphrey Bogart? Yeah, just died in the 50s. Yeah. Of, um, like a throat cancer. There you so. go. But his memory and his image... Lives on... Well, his name, too. I mean, it's such a synonymous name with Mm. the 40s. Um, Yeah, so, look, Casablanca. This is my first ever time watching it. I was going to say, have you
1: seen this before? Yeah, well.
0: Yeah. It was... And you know what? It's... I love that we can go as far back as 1942 to find time and place films Mm. that are just simply good because of when they were shot. And, like... Solely out of the production context, because when you strip back Casablanca, you know, especially when we were talking about Seventh Seal last week, yeah, it's an incredibly simple story. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely. Um, and if it didn't take place in the time and place that it did take in, would this film be as revered? Hmm. I don't I, think so.
1: I yeah. I think you're definitely onto something because it's one of those things where. Casablanca, You know, just the name. Everyone knows what you're talking about. Everyone... It comes up in every conversation when... Especially talking about, like, a modern film. It's like, oh, well, it's no Citizen Kane. It's no Casablanca. Like, it's synonymous with just one of the greatest films of all time. And what's interesting about... There's a couple of things, especially compared to those, like, Citizen Kane and... um, uh, Gosh, Gone with the Wind, for example. Those are way more visual films. There's a lot more scope to them or, or even... Um, you know the camera work, particularly in Citizen Kane, is a little more experimental. Yeah. Um, and something like Casablanca is, th- there's a lot of great filmmaking in it. Don't get me wrong, but in terms of the camera work and the blocking, it is so much more simplistic. It really does feel like a stage play at a lot yeah. of times,
0: and a lot of that's to do with the restrictions.
1: Like yeah, there were yeah a fair
0: sure. amount of wartime restrictions. They couldn't build a lot of sets, like the America.
1: That's right. Yes, you're right because of the, the supply constraints, which I guess we're having now <laughs> with COVID. Yeah. Well, so was, buy, yeah. don't build. Everyone's heads up, but <laughs> yeah. But yeah, to your point, with the the time and place, I think a huge part of it is because of that, because of the context and the fact that this was a, a highly political film. I mean, it still is, but at the time, especially and and what was so surprising to me is. You know, you, you expect when you look at like all the trivia and like you look into why it's the greatest film of all time, and you're right. I think it's very simplistic. It's just it's a really well made film, and a very simplistic love story, obviously with the war as the backdrop. Yeah. But so many of like the little trivia facts and what makes it so interesting, they're all just like random facts from the set. Oh, this was interesting casting, or this like this set was built this way and that. Mm. It was, I was baffled by like that. That's all really a lot of people have to say about the making of Casablanca. So I think you're right. I think a lot of it is the context, and the fact that it's such an anti-war, heavily political film, not necessarily by an auteur, and I'm not saying that Curtis is not an auteur. He definitely worked within the studio system. We're going to talk about him in a minute. But this was a very studio film. This was Warner Brothers really going out of the way to make a political statement through their movie. Yeah. And they did not expect to win Best Picture at the Oscars. They did not. (laughs) They had no idea what this film was going to be.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, because there's, especially when, not a year later, you have Citizen Kane, which we've talked Mm. about on the show, where it's, you know, there's so much uh, prolific storytelling, a different narrative type and structure is happening there. There's so much other stuff happening. Yeah. Whereas this, yeah, it's just taking that, essentially it's taking that political stance. And the reason I I said at the, the top of the show was it's interesting... If this film is even made, the same film is made two, three years later, mm. knowing that what the U, you, you know, obviously. Say after the, the war's over. Well, after the war's over, even yep. the back end of the war, where a lot of the real atrocities of Nazi Germany weren't uncovered until the final year of the war. Right. Um, and obviously, concentration camps were. People were aware of them, but obviously weren't aware of the mass genocides mm. that didn't really come until. You know, nineteen forty-four, nineteen forty-five, right. and it's really interesting because, like I said, in this film, they're almost put in this position where, yeah, they they don't really ever showcase their menace, at least not in front of us. We don't mm-hmm. really see the atrocities. You know, it's implied that a character that we meet in the early stages dies off-screen, yep, um, under mysterious circumstances. <laughs>
1: But, Ugati, I mean, is that his name? Yeah, Ugati? but yeah.
0: the... I mean, the inciting incident is the fact that two German officers are killed mm. by Ugati. Um Well, at least assumed to be. I think it's pretty clear he did. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, just in terms of even his way of being like, oh, isn't it funny those two German officers died? <laughs> uh, um, like, dude, play it safe. They're with an earshot. I, <laughs> I know. But... For the most part, they're nothing more than that menace and uniform in this place because Casablanca is, is mm. essentially a neutral territory. Well,
1: I think that's their motivation, you're right, is is neutral territories within neutral territories because you've got Casablanca as a whole, but then you've got Rick's, as in like the club, that is most certainly, and Rick himself is most certainly an analogue for America's neutrality and, and uh, the decision not to go to war rather the delayed decision to go to war i should say I mean,
0: calling you was it cafe america <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not very subtle <laughs> no it's really not this film isn't
0: actually that subtle it's... no no
1: but but i think you're right i think a big part of that motivation for why they're not like like as evil as they potentially could have been portrayed as is we're in neutral zone yeah so there's a lot of like nods and winks going on i mean the fact that you know there's someone who've escaped from a concentration camp. Is not immediately like interrogated and arrested at the door. There's like there's more mind games at play going mm. on here between him and the characters, especially. Yeah. Uh, but I think also part of it is the Hayes code and Warner Brothers wanted to be kind of careful with their yeah, portrayal. Of course. So I think you're right, there's a lot of the sort of outside context that yeah. does affect that too. I think
0: the sighting of World War One, which is what they talk about mm. and, um a couple of times, and there's a couple of little little quips, like, oh, how does that work out for the Germans in World War One?" <laughs> uh, which I found quite funny. Um, but it is interesting, because, yeah, the war, in a way, if it's not for some, like, defining scenes of this film, which mm. we'll obviously get to, these scenes of this, you know, these ensemble um, sort of stances, it often puts greater emphasis on, yeah, like, this love story that takes place with the war being kind of the backdrop. And, yeah, yeah. Um, It's very hard to... Obviously, we're starting to see that emergence of moral ambiguity and yes. the noir genre in the sense that, you know, we see some really good uh, casting shadows and sort of low and high key lighting used mm. and it's all very naturalistic and obviously having this femme fatale character that puts sort of Humphrey Bogart's Rick in more trouble, Um, well, puts him and his you know her her czechoslovakian lover yeah well even uh, just
1: the way he treats her at times is like yeah it's, it's harsh and brutal and we understand that because like most people have been heartbroken at least once in their lifetime so we we have the empathy there but you're right and i did compare this to films like double indemnity which only came out a couple of years later it's what we did last year yep. as our 40s film for the countdown um and, and yeah it's not just the witty dialogue and the morally great dynamics it's like it all plays into the idea of like that neo noir thriller mm. and like i think mean, this is a little more melodramatic than that not not that that's a disparaging term at all but i think you're right i think it's totally leaning towards that type of genre at times mm. especially yeah with the shadow lighting and that it's not as intense as a neo-noir or, like the third man for example um it's not as expressive
0: as those films but
1: nevertheless i think the inklings are still there the beginnings of it are still there i
0: feel like mm. yeah it's um it is a in itself yes like the, i think the time and the place is such an essential aspect of this you know these are a lot of people that could have been drafted into the war effort that have gone and taken um gone and mm. decided to make this film um obviously that power of art over Obviously, what was going on at the time. And then, of yep. course, as, as I said at the start of the show, you've got like these uh, Jewish refugees essentially mm-hmm. um, playing, depicting the Nazi officers. Um, yeah, I mean, it, in itself, it, it's definitely creative with its limited sets. I mean, I was trying to count them off the top of my head. I think that obviously the Cafe America is essentially just a mass, vast majority of the film and has a lot of rooms within it. Yeah, I think I read somewhere like,
1: three individual, like, sets that combine, create the entire um, geography of it. And I guess I would include, like, the upstairs rooms and things like that as well. Um, But you're right, that, and then I guess, like, the supermarket. And I think a lot of the stuff at the start of the film was stock, or, like, shot at a local airport. Mm. Um, but to the, to your point, it's interesting that this is such a, like, a worldly film where it mostly takes place in Morocco, but then there's tons of sequences in, I think, Paris, um, or France, whichever. Um, but the fact that this whole thing was shot in an American studio, so I, I think it's quite interesting. But like you said, there's a restrict- wartime restrictions. And, yeah. and, of course, this wasn't... I think mean, they were trying to make this on the cheap, because, again, they didn't realise how important this one was going to be to the zeitgeist. Absolutely. So yeah, there's a lot of aspects to that. I thought it was interesting. You know
0: what I was saying? I was saying today in talking about this film, mm. I love, um, what these sort of 40, you know, we're talking about the noir movement and this is definitely one of those, uh, sowing seeds for what would become that noir movement. Mm. But even the way, they depict femme fatales, and this is the early stages. And obviously, Ilsa is definitely a more angelic on the surface femme sure. fatale. She's not, um, but it's always really cool. There's something really like time, timeless in the sense that it's love how everyone just patru- like discusses her in this angelic. <laughs> <pair>. There's sometimes <laughs> it's that you know, obviously very inappropriate. Tell me you were the most beautiful women, woman to ever step
1: foot in Casablanca.
0: And they were drastically (laughs) underestimating it. It's just so good. I, I, you know what? To your credit, the the back and forth between Rick and that police officer was like sting level. The sting level back and forth. (laughs) I loved it. I thought it was great. Even the way the Mm. ending, like with them, the ending plays out. Yeah, so good.
1: Round Um, up the usual suspects. Yeah. Yeah. So many great quotes. Well, I think let's talk a bit about that. That sort of. Love triangle dynamic because, like we were saying earlier, this is primarily a love story with the, yes. the with the political backdrop, um, which I think does make this film so much more interesting. Imagine if that wasn't, if it wasn't a political backdrop, if, if this didn't wasn't shot well, in World War Two, like you said, it,
0: would it was equivalent. It would, it would might as well be like Laszlo would just be, like a soldier off at war and then come back and find yeah. his <laughs> partner's been having an off for love. Like I mean. Yeah. She doesn't have a lot of... Re- I'm not going to lie. Ilsa doesn't have a lot of redeeming qualities in this. But I think the whole thing is she's a lot younger than yes. her male counterparts. And that sort of that naivete. and, Because um, I think she's considerably younger than Rick. Um, yeah, it seems that way. It definitely to me it felt like there was an age gap there yeah and if you look at 40s and 50s cinema that's pretty normal yeah having a guy in their 40s and this woman in their 20s like (laughs) um i just think of james stewart and rear window yeah yeah um but yeah I, i think that they play it off like that but i mean what can you they're both She's she's just fallen in love with American in Paris, hasn't she? It's always Paris. <laughs> it's always Paris. There is always Paris. But
1: I think I mean what's interesting about the diamond because like you said, it could have been like the soldier comes back from war and it's like the plot of brothers, you know, in a more contemporary setting. With yeah. Toby Maguire losing his shit. But what this does is sort of phrase them both, and especially Laszlo in like this underdog situation, as as someone who's escaped from a concentration camp is trying to get uh,
0: to America or to safety with his wife. He's a symbol of sort of rebellion. Yes, amongst yes. the underground.
1: And it's something that's said of Rick many times throughout the film, especially of like his past and, and from Sam, who I guess is like is his oldest friend in this context, the one person that came with him to Casablanca, um, is that he wasn't always cynical and that he, I think he fought in the Spanish War. There was some there was some dialogue yes. in there about that. Um, the fact that he fights. Um, for the underdog is is sort of a trait that's constantly said of him, uh, but something that's not reflected because of his heartbreak, and I think what's so clever about this love triangle is he's obviously the odd one out, because she was married to Laszlo before they had even met, and yes, she participated in what seems like adultery, she thought that he had died So Mm. there is that justification. I think they only included that in because of the Hays Code. Yeah. (laughs) It had nothing to do with story or like character motivation. It was just so they could actually get the film released (laughs) to an audience. But I think that makes an interesting because all of a sudden you have Rick, again, representing uh, the passiveness of America that is unwilling to go to war just yet, uh, that has to sort of build towards that. And his choice is to help... The underdog or in spite of his ex-lover or someone who broke his heart to go against their interests and to sort of align more with the german uh, soldiers or the or the nazi party so it's you're adding there's the personal stakes there but they, they keep lining up with the ideolo- ideological stakes as well mm. and obviously this film is on the right side of history <laughs> i think it's fair to say that <laughs> Yeah, don't
0: I don't think the film's nearly as effective if he doesn't have his arc, I mean, he yes. essentially is just a Han Solo-esque character, <laughs> he's charismatic, he gets by with nefarious means, he runs yep. a, you know, a corrupt bar, but yep. in, the well, cafe, but in a very corrupt city, so it's that third man-esque that, oh, well, everyone's corrupt, so I'm, yep. I'm just gonna do the same, and um, but yeah like he says you know when he's speaking to the officer he's bringing up the fact that he's running uh guns in ethiopia in mm, 36 and that's then it. and then serving yeah for the the loyalists in the spanish war in like 39 and then of course oh look nothing's happened for a couple of years he's mm. become evil obviously because of that heartbreak that happens at the hands of ilsa and i for me what what dry why does he choose what is right do you think it's because of what happens in the bar when they sing the big national anthem moment, mm-hmm. or is it? That's or, a
1: fantastic moment. I that's duel of the anthems. <laughs> that
0: that's is, I think if a film is is defined by a scene, and and in the sense, define its success is defined in a scene. Mm. For this film, it has to be that film. Like if if you were to say, like you know, we even look in the last year with um everything everywhere all at once. There's probably sure. two scenes that like. Define that film to being like oh yeah this is gonna win best picture <laughs> there's probably that massive monologue about loving each other or it's just honestly the two rocks <laughs> I'm here for it that
1: did it for most people yeah um, well I think in terms of it's helped me to pinpoint like the exact moment when he chooses to give the the. Um, I was gonna say passes not passes I I say passes yeah like the tickets yeah exactly on the um, plane. and to, to not keep one for himself and to give it to both of them and uh you know oh you go off and like continue your fight and there's i and i think it's such a triumphant moment when that happens and when he says that because at, at one point it's like he's almost selling this guy off to a concentration camp that at a, at a time in this film it or even worse to be what, he, or much worse exactly so uh, the redemption arc it could have gone either way and my understanding is that they were shooting a lot of this film not even knowing exactly how it was going to end and I think I mean the ending is purely just that, that Warner Brothers political statement it's trying to make about and he says the line of like, you know, that it's so this is so much more important than just like the quabbling between us three or us two. Um so in terms of the pin the pinpoint moment, he has a change of heart in the film. There's probably an argument for which which scene that would be. Obviously they have their their one on one and that's a great one she scene when she's pointing the gun at him. And it really is that moment of like, wow, look how far these two have come from like Mm. lovebirds in Paris to (laughs) one's pointing a gun at the other. But I I think it's just that taking a step back and realizing what's right and fighting for the Mm. underdog and and doing that despite the... the, I mean, it's a selfless move that he's doing and how it's going to affect him and the love of his life has to go away. But for that argument for the greater good, I mean, that's... It's probably the most obvious ending in a lot of ways. It's the happiest ending they could have gone with.
0: It's definitely a happy ending. I mean, the the even the fact that the uh, charming relationship between uh, Rick and the the police officer leads mm. to them walking off into <laughs> the sunset essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sure, a
1: part of that is probably the haze Code and them wanting to make sure that they could get this film through and have that message at the end, but. I I even if you had a more complicated noir esque ending, yeah, where like one of the trio dies or, um, you know, Laszlo was killed or yeah, you know, something a bit more controversial. I don't think that makes the film any
0: better. No, but we've also got to remember, th- like I said, this is we're actually only just starting in the noir era here at forty-two. Sure. So, um, we're not actually going to see the peaks of noir before the back end of the forties and early 50s. That's going to be like the real prime time for it. So yeah. um, we have to remember that, that this is only sowing seeds. It's not sprouting trees. So sure. um, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. And I think that it does an immaculate job, but it really is a film that is defined by, like you said, it's political stances, it's time and place because this story at any other time mm. Uh, probably would not have been as conversed or regarded. It's poteness would be much less. Yeah. It's probably a good way to put it. There are some, I mean, there are little nuances that are really nice. You know, obviously Sam's mm-hmm. depiction in the film being an African-American man who, yeah, is still subservient to a white man, but actually has a lot of uh, sway in yeah and there's, there's
1: a deep friendship there and there's a care he's always um you know like oh you hurt him so much like i can't play that song and and it's a lot of his motivation isn't from any sort of di- dictatorship or anything like that it's because of his no. own
0: care for these characters i mean even when rick is drunkenly uh shooing him away he actually doesn't listen to him he doesn't go mm-hmm. oh yes i'm gonna go away he goes no <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> sit like, right oh, here yeah <laughs> exactly does make that scene when ilsa comes in a little awkward because he doesn't get up and leave in that scene yeah well, he's I... just like sitting there while <laughs> they're having that back and... well, i was that... waiting for the shot where sam would be like all right i'm gonna get out of this <laughs> <laughs> This is getting
1: needed. well i think that speaks to, like the deep friendship that they had as a as a trio yeah. not even just the two as lovers but what i love about that scene because you have so much of the driving question leading up to that scene or before the flashback, I should say, of like, what is the relationship between these two characters? Why is it so sour? Why are they so shocked to see each other? What is the history here? And obviously that driving question is answered during the flashback and as we learn about their romance and then the heartbreak. But what I love is that immediately after that flashback, the driving question becomes like, oh, what are they going to say to each other? Mm. You know, without an audience, without you know onlookers, so to speak. And when she, you know, basically, it feels like she almost busts the door down of like, all right, let's have our talk now. Yeah, and it's like it's generally like, ooh, like I'm so curious what they're gonna what they're gonna
0: talk about. She's and really good at the single tier. She is very good at the single tier. You're. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that. Oh, we watched, oh was Like, God. man, she's really good at just getting that one. Just yeah. to like Margot look-
1: Robbie and a Babylon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the skills are going through, but you speak of details. I love the detail. And it's funny because this is a great detail that's then juxtaposed with. Like an error, like an editing error, which I love. I gotta point it out, is during the flashback when they're at the train station. Obviously, Sam runs with the. Is it Sam that has the letter? Yes. Yeah, and we get the close up of the the letter, and we're trying to read this running writing. Of course, we're twenty first century men. I'm struggling to read it yeah. <laughs> without pausing it. But I love the detail of the rain. It's obviously pouring down, and he's got this big like top hat. Yeah, well, it's not a top hat, but like a like a bowler hat. What would you call it? It's um, a top, it's a top. A fedora. Out. Fedora, it's a fedora. Um so you got the rim where the rains are like building up and then it starts like wetting the yeah. so the, the the words are running as if like he's the his tears. Yes, I love that detail, but it's immediately juxtaposed with the next shot where it's just not raining. <laughs> so say enter the train. I'm like, I love that so much.
0: <laughs> like tears in the not rain. <laughs>
1: There you go. Bloody Blade Runner. Yeah. Absolutely ripped off Casablanca. How dare they? Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Curtis, Just a little bit. This isn't a director's corner, Zeke. No. But it, I feel like... You tell me if you agree. I feel like his direction is actually quite invisible for a lot of this film. And uh, again, talking about like the visual style and flair like Citizen Kane and Gone with the Wind and these other films we put in the, the echelons of American classics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but the other thing about Curtis as well is that he's definitely comes from a studio system he's directed over 100 films which is baffling but not too uncommon for that time of uh, time of the film industry and you know from epic battle scenes he did swashbucklers he's done horror films I really want to check out his horror film because apparently he was a huge inspiration for um The Exorcist which I'm really keen to see and then he did Robin Hood or at least he assisted in directing Robin Hood mm. Uh, right before this film so he's a very versatile director doing all sorts of different genres and types of stories Um, and yet this is the one he's most well known for which I mean obviously the film speaks for itself Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of his his directorial range I thought that was quite interesting there is a twenty eighteen black and white film called Curtis.
0: I was just looking at that right now, yeah,
1: so I saw this a few years ago actually, and i I think I liked it a lot more than other people did i thought I thought the cinematography was absolutely stellar in that film. I think a lot of people weren't too fans uh too much a fan of the the storytelling and and the plot. I mean there was a lot of inaccuracies people were saying it is based around the idea of the u s government putting pressure on Curtis in terms of how he was going to fill this film with propaganda and how he's going to sway public opinion with this film about the country's you know, intervention in the mm. war. So I mean, like, that's kind of the general storyline. I think a lot of people had issues with like the inaccuracies of that. So I can't speak to that too much. But I wanted to point that out. It used to be on Netflix. It's not anymore. It is not, no. Yeah, um, which is unfortunate. But I think it's an interesting watch. And I liked it a lot more than most. So I
0: would recommend it. Um. Yeah, it, look, it is definitely... I would agree that there's very... It doesn't feel like there's... Um, a lot of direction happening. Mm. I think um, there are some good moments, but that we start to see, like I said, the 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 foundations of, of sort of Noir's lighting style occurring. Like the when he, you know, obviously Bogart's Rick is is drunkenly sitting there while Sam's playing and is asking him to keep playing. Mm. We're seeing some really cool harsh lighting against some uh, really strong blacks, and of course, then when Isla, um, Isla enters. Is Isla Isla? I think it's Isa. Elza. Elza. I think it's Elsa. Elsa. When Elsa enters, it obviously the doors open and there's that bleach white mm. that comes seeping through. So there are some cool moments there, some cinematography, sure, uh, good like DOP moments, like expressive there. lighting and yeah, um, but yeah, no, I, I think the dynamic for the most part, I think, is very traditionalist, sort of like you said studio forties writing the quippy back and forth and yeah, um, which. It's always pleasantly, we're always pleasantly surprised when we watch like a Bombok film that's full of that core. but it's essentially encapsulating what the 40s was, which were these really super quick back and forth, Mm. sort of quick... Laser targeted
1: dialogue. Yeah. I mean, you remake Casablanca word for word today, that film is at least 40 minutes longer. Yes. Because everything is so sharp and quick here, and I feel like you were to direct a film like this today, it would be... I want to say more melodramatic, but they would let a lot of the beats linger and, and take their time. There would
0: definitely be a greater emphasis on um, the impact the war is having around Europe. Um, yep. There are a couple of times when characters are actually sitting and watching the the plane go off to Lisbon, mm. and I feel like those are relatively brief moments, whereas they would be milked pretty um, interesting, uh, I think. But
1: well, I was even just talking about the literal dialogue exchanges. Yeah. Like that, that those would be kind of slowed down, and there'd be more beat moments. There'd and... be
0: more expression, yeah. And then I think that's what um, Bergman's doing so well with her time in it because she mm. doesn't have as much dialogue, and she's definitely the second to to sort of Bogart's performance in terms of he has a lot of the dialogue, he has a lot of the monologues. Um, so she has to sell a lot, almost on her reactions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she does really well with it. Um,
1: there's a great moment when, when Sam first plays the song and it's before um, Rick you kind of burst in where it is just this like elongated like 20-30 second shot of her just like listening and I guess reminiscing on yeah. those times in Paris so it's it's not to say that this film doesn't have those quieter moments they do exist but I think you're right if it were remade today it would be a lot more of those moments and it would not be a sharp 98 minute runtime. absolutely sick yeah. What was your yeah. highlight scene for Casablanca?
0: Um, look, I'm. It's hard to go away from that, um, sort of battle of the anthems moment. Yeah, um, it's low key mine. <laughs> it's very difficult. Um, and we can talk about it then in a little bit more extensive de-ca- de-ta- detail. There, that's that word. <laughs> it you wasn't that it. hard to say. There you go. Um. I think why this scene is so impactful is it's that power of like we said that ensemble performance you know a lot of yep. we've we've seen that the cafe American has become this living organism of multiculturalism we yep. have um obviously these French police officers and these Italians coming in that are also working in collaboration with um the german officers there's mm. a there's a scene when they're trying to salute um both Rick and um his sort of counterpart, and one of them's Mm. doing a salute, and one of them's doing a Hull Hitler, um, which is quite comedic. But what's really interesting about this is we're seeing sort of the true anti, like you said, that political stance that's happening. Yeah. The Um, rebellion. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, what I love, and it's actually a small moment, because you've got, yeah, the French anthem, the German anthem, and I actually love this little fact, I'm going to throw in an extra fun fact is they are actually going to go for a different German anthem, dust horse will slide which i think is is a lot more closely tied to the nazi party and the main reason why they went against using this anthem and more directly tying it to nazism uh, is that warner brothers didn't want to have to pay for the copyright if the song and the film played in allied uh, countries would have been fine but neutral territories like say portugal for example uh, they would have actually had to have paid the Nazis royalties for using that music mm. so again in terms of using this film as like a wider political statement that's i'm I'm really that makes a lot of sense that they would make that decision it's like why at the end of you know art is art, but at the end of the day, a lot of this film is to do with simply just being anti nazi <laughs> yeah anti nazi so of course you would make that decision because that's part of the film's. Messaging, but the I particularly love the moment it's just a close up on the woman who starts crying,
0: yeah, I was just getting a name. I think it's Siobhan Shavon, um, <laughs> who is actually the one that Rick throws out at the start of the film. Ah. and she actually comes before the um anthem unfolds. She actually returns with a Nazi a German officer, sorry, in arm in arm with a German officer, and there's right. actually a brief line in which Rick says. Um, I think it's oh, she's changing sides. Mm. Like it's a joke. It's played off as like a joke, and he makes it obviously to the officer. And of course, for her, she almost undergoes this the, one of the quietest but strongest like, political like arcs. A 360. Yeah, yeah. In that, it's that sort of obviously. You know, this is after in a post Germany has occupied Paris, mm. France. And if you and if you know anything about the war, obviously that led to basically the French having to surrender for a period of time and sort of live under the Germans' thumb. Um, Basically, all of their colonies, much like Casablanca there in Morocco, um, were under German rule. Obviously, they had a little bit more freedom. It was more just control of their trade and obviously of annexing sort of refugees that had committed mm. sort of atrocities but what's really interesting yeah is about that scene is that she's the one that's sort of breaking out in this patriotism yeah uh, patriotic the big uh, sort of close up moment. And, and it's really it's actually a really impactful scene because it's that moment where almost of this all of that sort of armor that a lot of these characters even the ensemble characters that we haven't really got to know um is is sort of broken mm. free um, and that everyone in Casablanca is either trapped there or is incredibly feeling trapped in themselves because yeah. they've been oppressed by this this greater evil. This is like, burgeoning around Europe and, and promises to burgeon around the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, and like the film, it, it can showcase that on a wider scale, but in terms of like that political oppressiveness, they're able to showcase that just in that one action of her putting, you know, Siobhan putting her arm around that officer and then obviously there's the joke and the, and the back and forth and then her eventual change but this idea of like fake it till you make it and like these refugees doing whatever they can to survive in the scenario that they, they found themselves mm. in um so I, I love that it's able to do that on the on the microscopic level but then also the wider scale in terms of the, the big anthem battle off so to speak uh so yeah i thought that scene was absolutely phenomenal um so would you say that's your, that's your highlight okay. scene as well? Like, yeah. It's pretty hard. It,
0: it defi- It's, like I said, even in this, this review, is that scene is the scene that pretty much wins you an Oscar because yeah. you just watch that scene and go, right, I get it. Like, I get why Yeah, this film's so important at this time. Yeah. And his own, like, not that it's not timeless in that sense, but I get why in this moment in time people went, that needs to win.
1: Yeah. This yeah. is this is what's beautiful about filmmaking, and we've always talked about that. Like film, make yeah. film is time capsule. We always yeah. talk about that, and you know, regardless of what you know, whether it's a documentary, fiction, nonfiction, or there's always a collection of ideas and thoughts and personalities that go into making these films. So it doesn't matter what it is; it's still a time capsule, one way or another. And this is to the extreme a time capsule of. Um, not only just America, but the, what these other countries were going for at this mm-hmm. time, uh, and Rick as an analog to America, making that decision at the end to, you know, to fight, to join in essentially, to fight for the greater good. So, classic, classic film, Casablanca. We love it. We love it on the show.
0: Casablanca is currently out to rent on Prime Video at four ninety nine, or out in wide release. Oh, there you go. I got the DVD right here. I also have a DVD. Very good. Speaking of. Wide release and streaming platforms. Mm. Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week?
1: Got a few things I think are quite interesting. Victim slash Suspect is a documentary coming to Netflix this week. It's about sexually assaulted young women who turn to the police for justice and are instead charged with making false reports, imprisoned by the very system they believed would protect them. Sounds pretty... uh, Ooh.
0: Sounds intense.
1: Very Intense. You also got the gay romantic comedy Bros, and uh, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which are both coming to binge as well. Also coming to Prime, which you just mentioned a minute ago, you got Orphan First Kill, that comes to binge as well. Actually, there you go. There you go. I could have made that an even tighter segue. Uh, coming to Disney Plus, you got the premiere episode of American Born Chinese, a show about high school is being dragged into a battle between gods of Chinese mythology and reunites. Not only Michelle Yeoh and K Han Kwan, but Stephanie Su. Look at that. Bloody everything everywhere all at once. Almost the entire car. So we just need Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> I wonder why she's not in American born Chinese. She probably is. Can you imagine if she just came <laughs> in the last episode. Exactly. The It's just walk in and they're like, oh, this is ours now. This is, <laughs> we, We've taken over. Yeah. <laughs> and coming to cinemas this week, Zeke, are you excited for Disney's live action Little Mermaid? Sorry, Halle Ba-ley, Bailey, ha- Halle Berry, Halle Bailey.
0: Ha- Which one? Barry? Though? Which one? Halle Berry. <laughs> Um, you know what? I yeah. I heard a lot of commentary, and I, I find it really funny with these rebranding and, and repackaging and and right. putting them out. And I stick my hands in the air and go, "Well, if you're going to pay, it, it shouldn't be about ethnicity or race or anything like that. It should just be." They're just giving you the same film. <laughs> Are you paying $20 yeah. for the same film? Like, <laughs> it's going to come to Disney Plus in, like, two seconds, so why don't you just wait? But yeah. I don't know. Does it make, does it make a billion, notch, it, It's not coming out at the right time. I mean, it's Yeah, been, you know what? You're yeah. right. Right in the middle of the school semester. So it must not be that good. In May? Because for me, well, that screams... Or at least that screams to me that they don't think it's projected to make a lot of money—not not a billion, at least.
1: There's got to be something to it, because like, I mean, unless I'm I'm forgetting something, they delayed it or what, or they brought it forward, whatever. I mean, this this release date has to be like done six years in advance. There has to be science to it, because I, I think that whether the film's good or not is irrelevant to Disney. I truly believe that. I agree. So why? Hundred percent. It doesn't
0: matter. The quality of the film. So let's talk about money net. But then, where's the what? What is the financial benefit of releasing it at the end of May?
1: Yeah, look, I I think it will make a billion. I think it will, and I say that hmm. purely nihilistically. <laughs> I'm Rick in the early stages of of Casablanca here. I'm. <laughs> look, I no, I'm a hundred percent with you. I I mean, I could care. L- I couldn't get less about the whole. Um, Race conversation going on, and you know, not care. not my Little Mermaid, whatever. I, I don't want to know who your Little Mermaid is, frankly. But <laughs> <It's> <laughs> but you're still... right. It's like the the appeal of these, at least what Disney should be pushing, the appeal of these remakes that they've been just milking out for the last nearly ten years now, since Cinderella. And Cinderella, from memory, wasn't even that terrible. Is that oh wow, we're bringing these stories into live action. It's like more lively than ever. It's 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 like. These are the most lifeless films you've ever made. I mean, Lion King, because it's what yeah. CGI now. It's oh, it's meant to be more full of life, more expressive. Like what? You, what? They're not. They're, they, what you got like little cartoon sea crabs? They're now real,
0: real crabs, crabs floating around in which the water. That, we, we, that, we, that's meant to be more expressive. Yeah. It is quite funny. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, we've talked about Fantasia on the show, Pinocchio, you know, mm. these films that we're like, geez, are right made in the 40s. And we still think they're pretty timeless, you know. Absolutely. There's, there are things that, yeah, I guess, you know, in a more politically correct world, we would correct them now. But in terms of the animation style, that's timeless. That won't age. Mm. Um, and I just, yeah. I'm I'm glad right now I don't have a child that wants to go and watch these films, <laughs> and I would try so very hard to just make them watch things like Night. I'm so happy I got to grow up with films like Night of the Museum. You know, like films that yeah, they're cheesy, but at least they're original. You know, yeah. think about think about this, Jake. Like when we were ten, yeah. right, so 2007, we have films like Ratatouille. We're in the golden age of Pixar. Yes, so we're in that golden four years. Where, like I said, of the museum came out, national treasure was out. um I was about to say hotel for dogs <laughs> oh, well to be fair, hotel for dogs was actually out um oh I mean, God. a couple of years earlier, cats first dogs um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mo a few years before that um, now we're getting cooked um, but I just think I'm really happy I got to live in this this period where there were none of these live action remakes that are just saturating the films I get to go watch at the cinema. Mm. You know, and I think we need to seriously think about that. Like, it's been a whole generation of kids just watching the Marvel movies or these live All action the, remakes. Yeah, there yeah. hasn't been any original... Um, and I've talked about it with, obviously, the two... you know I've talked about it with people I work with because they've got kids who are... You know, nine to thirteen. Yeah, and you're well, sitting... even
1: even your students. You kind of have perfect access to the 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 demo, the demographic that have only really been truly exposed to yeah Marvel and Disney remakes, Disney conglomerized conglomerized content. Yeah, they're, they're, it's the, scary.
0: Which is soulless. You know, it lacks any uh, essence or creativity. And yeah, sure, some of them are cheesy and some of them, but some of them were brilliant. Like mm. some of them were like. So fun. I mean, I've never seen... Like, when so, like you know, we're talking about this Dodgeball remake. What's that going to look like? I, I mean, it's going to be... Ugh. It's scary to think about what it's going to look like. And why people... It's that mean culture of wanting a second one. But it's like, do you know the world you live in? Vers- Watch Dodgeball again. You're not going to get, like, 50% of the jokes. You know? Like, most of the comedy was delivered by someone in a wheelchair. Like... <laughs> you won't be able to do that now. (laughs) There's so many things you just can't touch. Yeah, Um, yeah. And like I said, even the more like, even the more like child friendly ones, like night of the museum, there's some, there's some funny jokes in that that probably couldn't get away with now. What
1: about, what about bedtime stories with Adam Sandler?
0: Bedtime story. <laughs> That's a great one, though. <laughs> it's I'm a, It's sorry. a nice idea. Yeah, it's, for sure. It's a nice enough idea. It was fun. I would never hated the film. I mean, It's a kids' film. It's a kids' film. I just uh, there you we go. don't have those anymore. Like, even like Sandler doesn't go near the the PG. Not since Grown Ups, really. The the PG yeah. films. anymore. Yeah. He's doing well, even like Murder Mystery.
1: Like, who's that really for? Oh, Not that's, kids. That's date night couple. Yeah, that's yeah, couple yeah. couple night really.
0: Yeah. And you got nothing else to watch. So I just—it's an interesting conversation. I think that's the real conversation we should be having: is the fact that yeah, they're printing money with these films, but they're soulless, and we're actually creating this whole generation of uh, people that all they've really known are franchise films, mm. and that's either Marvel. I um, mean, there's a little bit of Star Wars in there, even like this new Transformers Who wants another Transformers movie? I know.
1: Who That's actually gonna bomb it? hard. I'm, I'm I'm putting it out there now. It's gonna bomb hard. I,
0: I'm bereft. <laughs> I don't know anyone that wants a Transformers movie. Uh, is um, it Michael Bay still? Did he direct? I think he did. He just wants money. Like he just he just needs a paycheck. <laughs> he authentically loves making Transformers films. Yeah. You can tell.
2: He, yeah.
0: He's just interesting to me because I was thinking about it the other day. I was like. What can kids... Uh, what what happens when a kid's my age, you know, turning 26 and they go, what did they watch in their childhood? Mm. Uh I just watched, you know, the first Guardians movie or or watched, I don't know, what was coming around, Civil War and all that. Mm. And you're like, oh, so you just watched a bunch of franchises.
1: I'm scrolling through Hoyts now. And obviously, Little Mermaid, we'll mention, is coming out later this week. you got Fast X... So, the 10th film in the franchise, Guardians Volume 3, which is what, like the 35th film of that franchise. And then your book clubs and Super, super Mario Brothers movie is like an anomaly. Yeah. That's incredible. And like it's from Illumination. So, I was like, you can complain about minions all day long. Well, get
0: just the Illumination um, whole conglomerate. Yeah. So, yeah. minions. The other day, I had my some of my kids in my class being like, Oh, I know this weird, obscure DT ref oh, What a firewall is from the Emoji Movie. <laughs> part of my soul just died. <laughs> that's what they're You watching. guys are not going to believe this. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. At the right time for cinema. Oh,
1: uh, yeah. It's... I-
0: it's an interesting it's an interesting conversation. Well,
1: it's, it's funny because, like, in theory, the right time to be born is, like, the latest possible time period because then you get to experience all of the movies. Because, like, if we were born in the 30s and we're watching Casablanca in cinemas, I'm like, wow, what a great time to be alive. Look at all these movies. Like, yeah, but we don't get to experience any of the great films in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Yes. So there's that. but But I think to your point, there's also that experience of, like, going to the cinema and having these like amazing options and it doesn't but, feel like we have that as I much actually anymore.
0: do well I think we lived in the last as a child we lived in the last great decade and it'll be interesting in a couple of years you'll probably see ironically a, a docu, docu series on what streaming services did to culture mm. like movie and film culture you know I mean you you touched on it a little bit with your documentary ex-rental and how that sort of Affected the business aspect, but yeah, and that social... came out before
1: bloody Disney Plus even was a thing.
0: And exactly, it's like so it let's talk about the social cultural impact. As the fact is, yeah, sure, some people are still going into the cinemas to watch these franchise films, mm. but there used to be something incredibly valuable about oh, let's either get the paper out, see what's in the cinemas, let's mm. jump on the internet and have a look. Oh, these call up are.
1: points and the robot will tell you all the session times. <laughs> And
0: it's like... What a great time. You know, and you you would walk in and you wouldn't know if it was going to be a good movie or a bad movie. Or you Mm -hmm. had to rely on the guy on the Today Show in the morning to tell you, (laughs) oh, that's a good movie for your kids. And it's like, that just doesn't... Like, those guys still exist, but obviously they don't have the same residency. I mean... Yeah. These... Most of these kids just go to movies just to peeve us off and make us turn around and yell at them now. (laughs) Look at you, Well, that's the big
1: one. It's now horror. It's like not even elevated horror, but just, like, Smile and Evil Dead Rise. And, like, I was shocked at my screening for Evil Dead Rise because it was fairly packed, a lot of teens that had seen the original films and were quiet and respectful and had some really interesting conversation about the film as it was ending. And, like, yeah. I was, you know, poking my ears up. I'm always curious what people say out loud at the end of a film in the cinema. But even then, that horror, that's for, like, teens. We're talking about kids here. Like, kind of the one step below yeah. the M.A. Horror. But then you look at films like Bo is Afraid and you get so many people talking about it, like, oh, Bo is Afraid. Horrible, horrible, horrible film. And it's like, I don't care how horrible or beloved the film is. It is one of the most unique things I've ever seen in my life.
0: And, and you the like fact that people I, are talking about
1: and it. it. And I love that people are talking about it and I love the conversations being having and it came out in 2023. The yeah. same year as Ant-Man and the Wasp, Plantomania.
0: <laughs> I'm, honestly, and sort of to wrap this up or at least my last point on this sure. is, is, I have so many of my kids coming up to me and going oh, have you seen everything everywhere all at once? And I go, yeah, yeah, of course I have. Mm-hmm. So a really good film. And they go, yeah, it was really good. And I just want to, I turn around and say, then why does that, What? why do you stop at that film? Like, why is you watch a film like that so unique and different mm-hmm. and experimental and re- taking risks? And you go, okay, that was really crazy and wild. And that was amazing. I'm now just going to go back to watching all of the same <laughs> grey bland, or not even watching now, just jumping on the TikToks, jumping on the reels. Mm. Apparently, I'm old because I watch reels instead of TikToks. But, oh, there you but go. But you know what I mean. It just it it's like, why would you watch? Like, I
1: think at that point, like that, ta- you need that taste. I mean, that's essential. You need the taste of something different. Like me watching Birdman in high school was like,
0: like, yeah. whoa, man. But like, the first time I watched a Wes Anderson film, I was that- like. Like, My
1: first Tarantino film was, um, uh, Bloody Django, and yeah. I was like, "Wow, this is incredible!" Like that, you always get that first exposure to something that's just different from what's shoved in your face, and it's it's always it's like this illicit sort of excitement, in a way. And, but I think the problem is, spe- and I'm not saying this is like a generational thing. Like I, I'm sure I've went through this phase as well. Of like, there's your comfort zone. Which is yeah your your Disney properties now it's basically what that is, and then every now and then you get that taste of like something different, something unique and interesting and engaging, and I think it takes a lot of those for you to start actively searching for those, so I think that's the phase that these kids need to sort of evolve into mm. is they've got their taste with everything everywhere, and now they just need they just need a little guidance and and motivation to keep looking for those unique things. So yeah, I think that that's maybe how you go about that. Excellent. Know, indoctrinating the youth, seek.
0: Do we have other things? That we're <laughs> Wait, on? there's plenty. That oh, There's God.
1: a ton that came out.
0: <laughs> we are terribly sorry for that. Not,
1: not as big as The Little Mermaid, to be fair. Um, so, Renfield, I'm excited about this, is a comedy horror starring Nicolas Cage as Dracula and Nicolas Holt as the titular character in a contemporary setting. So, I've heard this is actually quite wacky, but quite fun. Finally comes to Australian cinemas this week. There we go. Very exciting. The Machine sees Bert's drunken past catch up with him 20 years down the road when he and his father, played by Mark Hamill, are uh, kidnapped by those that Bert wronged while drunk on a college semester abroad in Russia. Mm. So I think a lot of uh... The machine.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I've actually heard that. I've listened to Bert uh stand up. I find him quite funny. Oh, okay, I have heard the machine story. That's kind of the one that put him on the mat and made oh, him. Oh, so this famous. is like a real thing. That's... This legitimately happened to Bert It's So funny, and they've made it into the movie. It is that's one a great of those, premise. It's one of those stories that a comedian tells you, and it's too good to be true. Like yeah. it just like it's so. Like it's real. like sometimes we just have these stranger than fiction stories, mm. right? Um and it is such a funny story.
1: I saw me and Kirsty, I probably shouldn't have mentioned this earlier. We saw Danny Boy live on Thursday for the um Perth comedy show. Um he's hilarious. He's a great mm. guy. But to your point, one one of like a big chunk of his set was just telling the real life story, this bizarre story during COVID, of someone delivering a bed to his house and him basically wanting to return the bed back but then he had to like verbally decline delivery so then they like did this like performance where he pretended to answer the door again and decline delivery and it was like a whole thing of like this is the most bizarre story i've ever heard yeah and the, and just the simple fact that it happened is why it's so funny yeah and so i i love that idea that he's taken that and made a, a feature out of it very exciting Uh, We've also got Maybe I Do, which sees Michelle and Alan's relationship at a crossroads, and when they decide to invite their parents to finally meet each other, it turns out they've already know each other a little too well, perhaps. I don't know what that means, but I guess it's meant to entice you, Zeke, to go see it. Mm. Saint-Omer, or Omer, is a French legal drama based on the true story of the novelist who attends the trial of Lawrence Coley, a mother accused of killing her 15-month-old daughter. Sounds also a bit intense. And finally, Petrol screens at Luna Leaderville this Thursday the 25th, so later this week, it sees an impressionable film student befriending a performance artist who quickly takes hold of her imagination. And in the screening, accompanied with an in-person Q&A with the writer-director Alina Lodkina. 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 There you go. Perfect. Very nice. I think a Melbourne director.
0: Oh, A Melbourneian, There you go.
1: (laughs) A Melbourneian, There you go. What's he doing over here? Yeah, well... Uh, No, we love it. Well done. We love semi-local films. Absolutely. So that's this Thursday at Luna. Go check it out. But that's everything, Zeke. Coming to streaming and cinemas this week. An elongated discussion. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Well, it's time for us to move into, well, what we're going to be talking about next week on the show. Mm. It's our last instalment for the Countdown Through the Decades for our fourth year. Very sad. Jake, two films go up, only one walks out. The 1930s. He <laughs> you know phrases
1: like a wrestling
0: match. Yeah, I do. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I'll make that noise eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jake, what are we watching?
1: So, the film that lost the poll, the 22 to 9. Yeah. Bit of a thrashing for our last one there against Stagecoach. Just to be fair, a lot of people were like, oh, I'd love an opportunity to see Stagecoach. I have I get that message, like, people are like, oh, that's a great time for me to watch that film, and then it loses the vote, and then yeah. they just don't watch that film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're like that too sometimes. Like, we are oh, like, oh, it'd be great to finally watch this film or that film. Uh, instead, Zeke, next week on the show, we're watching the original King Kong. <laughs>
2: were made adventure to make you wonder if it's true while your eyes convince you that it is truly the thrill of thrills don't miss it this time
1: Crew discovers the eighth wonder of the world, a giant prehistoric ape, and brings him back to New York where he wrecks havoc.
0: Sounds like the whole film. Yeah, pretty much is the whole <laughs> film. <laughs> That's it. Don't spoil it. Um, look, we got a little bit of history with this this film. about well,
1: well, you do. Oh. I've never actually seen this before. There you go. Because it was part of a sound course.
0: Oh. You did, I did not do. Always nice to go down memory lane back uh. when. Uh, ZKJ was first conceived many a moons ago, back in the day. And uh, Zeke,
1: what's so exciting about this as well is we were joking about it a couple of weeks ago. But the it, the destiny was fulfilled. Out of four countdown through the decades, this is the first time ever that we both had equal participation. Obviously, well, we don't really talk about which who votes which film on the poll. We just kind of put the two films up yeah. and and how it goes is how it goes. This is the first year ever that we had five for five. As in, five of your films got selected, five of mine got selected, and it was a ping-pong match. Yes. So it literally bounced from you to me to you to me to you to me, the entire countdown. So, uh, well done, audience. That's
0: unprecedented. Yes. We love it. So, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Show Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with King Kong. Uh...